Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. If you're not already there, Revelation chapter 21. This morning we are going to, uh, we're going to wrap up our uh, study of Revelation. We've been uh, studying this book for several weeks now, and I've enjoyed every bit of it. Uh, I've preached several lessons from Revelation over the years, but I've never actually went through the whole book and preached through it. Uh, but I've enjoyed what we've been doing. And uh, with that being said, I meant to ask you this last week, but I forgot. And so I'll ask you this now. Uh, I'm kind of looking for feedback as to how you enjoy preaching through a book from beginning to end. Uh, I've never done this before. Uh, sometimes preachers will preach through a book, but I'm just kind of curious as to how you like this because I've thought about doing more of this in the future. Um, so stop me in the foyer or wherever and uh, let me know how you like this and we'll do this a little bit more in the future if you want us to. But we are, uh, we're wrapping up uh, our study of Revelation with ver chapters 21 and 22 this morning. Uh, I'll ask you this as we begin. Do you like taking pictures? Some people may like taking pictures, others not so much. I don't like taking pic pictures very much. I can remember as a kid, my mom used to always dress my brother and I up in Easter outfits. We always had to match for whatever reason. And uh, I remember as soon as we got home, I would always either untuck my shirt or go try to change my clothes real quick because if I untuck my shirt or if I change my clothes, then mom can't take a picture of us in our Easter outfit. And uh, she, uh, before long, she wised up and she began to do it before church rather than afterwards. Uh, but it never worked anyway. She always made me go put my clothes back on or tuck my shirt back in. But she always wanted to take our picture in our Easter Sunday outfits. But I never did like taking pictures. But why do we take pictures? We take pictures because we want to document a memory. We want to have something in our minds or a picture of something that we can see to remind us of something that we did that, that we liked or that was enjoyable. And even though I don't like taking pictures, whenever I was able to go to Israel back this past summer, I could not wait to get there and pull out my phone and take pictures of everything because I knew this may be the only time that I get to do this and get to see these types of things. As a matter of fact, before we left, Sarah told me, she said, make sure you take lots of pictures because she knew that I didn't enjoy taking pictures. But that was a time in my life where I actually enjoyed documenting the trip because it was a special opportunity, a special time. And when we look at Revelation chapters 21 and 22, it's a lot like that. That John is getting to see something, perhaps the most glorious picture, the most glorious image that he's seen throughout the whole Revelation. And he's getting to see that, but not only does he get to see that, he writes down the contents of those images and he puts it on paper so that not only the seven churches of Asia can see it, but God wants us to see it too. And it's, in a sense, a snapshot of eternal glory. This is very different from what we find in other places in Scripture. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about having the opportunity to be caught up to the third heaven and to be able to see certain things that other people haven't been able to see. And he would love to talk about those things and explain what those things were about, but God told him not to. 
He wasn't allowed to talk about those things. And it became kind of a thorn in his flesh. The fact that he didn't get to talk about it the way that he wanted it to. Or the way that he wanted to. He wanted to use that image, it seems, as a a help, an aid in his ministry. But he wasn't able to do that because God didn't allow him to. But here, John takes everything that he sees and he writes it down in detail so that we can see exactly what eternal glory is going to look like. And so this morning, I want us to look at these two chapters and talk about some things that we find. Now, this, these lesson, this lesson today very well could be three different lessons because I want us to call attention to three different things that we find throughout these two chapters, but each of them have their own set of principles or their own set of images associated with them in and of themselves to kind of help us see what this eternal glory is all about. And so without further ado, Dennis, let's rock out. (laughs) What do we find first of all? We find first of all that changes take place for the better. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 here as we find these different changes that take place for the better. And the first thing that takes place is we have unfading beauty. When you look at verse 2, it says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Those of us who are married, I want us to think about our wedding day. And I want us to think about the time that we were standing up here, whether it was in this building, some of you may, uh, may have had that experience, but you were standing there with your uh, best men on your side and with the preacher beside you, and all of a sudden the music started playing, the doors opened in the back, and there was your wife, more beautiful than you've ever seen her before. Think about that moment and how you felt. Think about all the time and preparation that went into that moment. The bride goes and picks out the perfect dress, not something that she's seen somebody else wear, but something that she wants to wear, that she thinks is beautiful. She picks out the perfect bouquet because it's got to match the bridesmaid's dresses and all the other colors. Those of us who have picked out an engagement ring, it's got to be a perfect ring, right? It can't be anything that we've saw anybody else have. It's got to be something unique to our bride-to-be. If you look at Sarah's ring, you'll see she's got a diamond in the middle with two blue sapphires on the side, and then on each side of those sapphires, three smaller diamonds. I've never seen it anywhere else. You know why? Because nobody else has it. I found the type of ring I wanted, but I had to order the sapphires, or the jeweler had to order the sapphires, particularly for that ring. Nobody else has it. It is hers. We spend so much time making sure that it's the perfect day. It's supposed to be beautiful, and it's supposed to remain that way for all time, and we're never supposed to forget that. Well, that's the way God describes this new Jerusalem. But my question is, what is the new Jerusalem? There have been several things that 
that people have tried to describe it being. One, one way that people have described it is that it's a, a new covenant. It's just symbolic as a new covenant between God and His people. A heavenly covenant between God and His people. And I kind of understand why some people will interpret it this way because it says that it is coming down out of heaven from God prepared as or like a bride adorned for her husband. And so they will say that this is not the actual bride. This is like a bride. And I can kind of see that. But I'm not, I don't necessarily go this route. Because when you look at all of these other places, like for example, look at chapter, uh, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 21. This angel tells John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. He said, come, I'm going to show you the bride. And what did He show him? He showed him that city. The city is the bride. If you look at chapter 19 and verse 7, we talked about this last week. It says, let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. The new Jerusalem here, according to my interpretation of this, is the church itself. God thanks so much of His church in heavenly glory that we get to experience that He describes it in the most beautiful terms we can think about. A wife on her wedding day. You have unfading beauty. Also relevant to these changes that take place for the better is ultimate glory. Look at verse 3, and it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. What's so bad about hell? A lot of times we think about hell and we're like, oh, you don't want to go there. It's going to be hot. There'll be all kinds of fire there. Nobody wants to set in fire. What's well, going to be that way for all eternity? You don't want to go to hell. It's going to be eternal punishment. Jesus said there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. You'll be cast into outer darkness. Oh, you don't want to go to hell. That is not what's so bad about hell. The pain, the torture, the torment, the heat, those things are just a fraction of the punishment to what hell's really like. You know what's so bad about hell? We are going to be in a place for all eternity where God is not. That's what's bad about it. But in verse 3, this eternal glory that Christians experience, those who are victorious over whatever problems they are facing, whatever worldliness they are overcoming, the dwelling place of God is with men. We'll be with God for all eternity in the exact same place where He is. And if you'll allow me to use that terminology, that's the only way that we can really understand it. We can't put God in an actual place, but we will be dwelling with Him. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12, as John is, is writing what Jesus is actually saying to these seven churches, when He says to the church at Philadelphia in verse 12, He says, 
The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. We talk about this name and, and, and we wonder what this name is. What name will we have? Well, I think if we argue over that and we try to contemplate that and we try to figure that out, I believe we run the risk of missing the point of what all of this is about. The point is not that we will have an actual name, a new name. The point is we will have a calling, a name that shows us that we are belonging to God and we are in His presence for all eternity. That's what the name is all about. Because when you look at Ezekiel chapter 48 and verse 35, as Ezekiel is describing this new city, this new Jerusalem, he says that the name of that city is what? The Lord is there. That's the name of the city that Ezekiel gives. And so as we think about our eternal punishment or the eternal punishment of those who are not uh, part of God's family. Yeah, the heat and all of that, it's, it's terrible. But it's nowhere near as bad as just being in a place where God is not. But in eternal glory, we are in a place with God for all eternity. We dwell with Him. And I love what John says. I can't read this without calling attention to this. He says, the dwelling place of God is with man. He doesn't say the dwelling place of man is with God. He says the dwelling place of God is with man. God is taking the initiative to dwell with us when we overcome sin. The ball is being placed in His court. And I think that's significant, what John is trying to describe. So we move on to verse 4. There's a change that takes place where there's no sorrow. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Whatever death we describe, it's never a good thing, is it? We call it spiritual death, perhaps. That's one death that we can think about. It's never a good thing. Being spiritually separated from a family, being spiritually separated from the one that created us, the one that put us on this earth, the one that sent Jesus to die for us so that that death would not have to be a reality. Spiritual death is never something pleasant to think about. Neither is physical death. Physical death is not something anybody wants to think about. But both of those things are relevant in the realm of physical existence here on this earth. But in eternal glory, sorrow that's associated with death and other things, crying certain things, you don't have to think about those anymore because changes take place for the better, taking away all of those bad things. We move on to verses 5 through 7 and we learn that every need is going to be fulfilled. It bothers me every time, every Tuesday we go to pick up our groceries at Walmart and we drive around the side and go to the back where the pickup line is and we get our groceries just about every single time we go. Standing there right at the corner, there's somebody holding a sign saying, 
I need something. Gas, food, water, whatever the case may be. We live in a world of need. And regardless of, as Mark mentioned earlier, how blessed we are in this country, there are still people that are very much in need. But in eternal glory, there's a change that's going to take place. We will never need anything anymore because everything that we will ever need, we will have because it all comes from God and we will be dwelling with Him. It says in verse 6, He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who comes, the one who conquers, excuse me, will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. No sin. When I talk about a change that takes place for the better, what about no sin? All of these sins that John mentions here have a specific relationship to the book of Revelation itself. Sometimes we read these and we kind of connect them to our, to our own context, to our own world, and I think it's, it's, it's understandable that we do that. But let's think about these in the context of Revelation. But as for the cowardly, who's a coward? A coward is an individual that says they are one thing, but they do something complete opposite, perhaps very similar to a hypocrite. Well, what is a coward in the book of Revelation? A coward is a person that says, I belong to Jesus. Well, you can't buy or sell unless you have this stamp on your forehead, according to chapter 13. Okay, I don't know. Jesus doesn't own me anymore. Now you own me. People that have renounced their relationship with Jesus to make their lives a little bit easier in the physical realm. What about the faithless? Those who did not believe that Jesus, that God could take care of their every need. Those that believed that Rome, that the emperor had more power than God did because of everything that they could see in the physical existence of what was going on around them. Those people were faithless. Their faith dwindled, therefore they gave up their spiritual lives to make their earthly lives just a little bit easier to deal with. The detestable murders or murderers, excuse me, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All of these these things have a particular relationship to the context of Revelation. But here in these two chapters, we're learning that while these may have been difficult to deal with when they were occurring, and when the problems were taking place, It's all in the past now. It's all irrelevant because those who overcome get to come over. Changes take place for the better in eternal glory. What else do we learn about eternal glory in these two books? Well, we learn that our eternal glory is characterized by spiritual protection. And so, or spiritual perfection. Uh, excuse me. Let's look at what these, uh, what enta- what's entailed in all of this. First of all, spiritual protection. Verses 12 through 14 says, It had a great high wall, this new Jerusalem did. And I want us to notice all in here, I didn't mention this, I probably should. Why is it spiritual perfection? Because all 
over the place throughout the remainder of this chapter and throughout the first five chapter, verses of chapter 22, we're going to find the number 12. And we've already learned that the number 12 is a number for spiritual perfection. You've got 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. It's the number for spiritual perfection. And so all of these things are going to be characterized by this number 12. What about the protection? Well, verse 12, it had a great high wall, the 12 gates, uh, and at the 12, uh, at the, 12 uh, the gates, 12 angels. On the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. You've got, th- uh, you've got three gates on the east, three gates on, the, uh, on the, the west, three gates on the north, three gates on the south. Three times four is 12. Not hard to see that there. Verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. In verse 21, it says you've got the 12 gates. There were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made, of, made up of a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. It's all about this protection that takes place. God is our refuge according to Psalm 5 and verse 11. And because God is our refuge, we are fully protected as being His people. What do the gates and the walls have to do? Well, you think about the ancient world and what those things served as. We've talked about the walls several times before in this series of lessons because it is, the relevance of it has come up several times. But those walls allowed people to see when the enemy was coming, where the enemy was coming from, and allowed preparations to be made for the attack that was going to be made upon those people. But what about the gates? Well, the gate is the way that people often tried to enter the city. And at the gate, you're going to have guards standing there to guard and protect the entrance of that city. If you want to run in there and ransack the city, well, you've got to do something to pull everybody away from that gate so that you can breach that city. And so everything is protected. Nothing evil, nothing worldly, nothing sinful, nothing at all is going to be able to breach this city because we, the city, is spiritually protected. As we move on, we've got spiritual capability. Verse 15 says, The one who spoke uh, with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. This would be about 1,400 miles when you equivocate that. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, roughly 200 miles by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So, obviously we're not talking about a physical city, we're talking about a spiritual city. But where do I come up with the idea of capability? Well, think about the idea of measuring. I think this is what this is getting at. In John chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, Jesus said, I go to prepare prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms or many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I told you that I go to prepare a place for you? What Jesus is saying there is that the place that He prepares is going to be a place that has plenty of room for everybody that will get to enter it. 
It's going to be capable of holding every single person that puts their faith in Jesus. It's never going to lose any kind of room, nothing. They will all be the same and the room will all be available for everyone. And so it will be spiritually capable. It will also be a place where we have spiritual victory. When you look at the first couple of verses of chapter 22, it's easy to get caught up, I think, in this water of life or the river of, of the water of life and also the, the tree of life. Because you can talk about reading the Bible from tree to tree. The tree of life pops up in Genesis chapter 2. It pops up in the very last chapter of the whole Bible. And so you can read the Bible from tree to tree. It makes sense. It fits. And we do need to focus on that. I'm not saying that at all. But I think we can focus on that so much but miss the point of these two images. Because notice what these two images points to. You've got this tree with its 12 kinds of fruit. But in verse 3 it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What does this river of the water of life and the tree of life point to? They point to the glory of the Lamb and of God. That's what these two images point to. And so spiritual victory is going to be what characterizes both of these places because the glory comes from the one who provides that victory for that new Jerusalem, for those people. But again, you've got the 12 kinds of fruit being a symbol for everything that we will experience, being given everything that we need, characterized by spiritual perfection, Finally, we, when we look at the remainder of chapter 2, we are called to consider the future in anticipation as God's people. The future should not be something that scares us. It should not be something that we dread. It should be something that we anticipate. As a matter of fact, isn't that what hope is all about? Spiritual hope is not the fact, man, I hope to go to heaven one day. Sometimes we ask people, do you know that you're saved or you know you're going to heaven? And some people say, man, I hope so. That's a false understanding of what hope is all about in Scripture. Because hope in Scripture is an anticipatory hope. We hope for something that we know we are going to receive whenever we keep God's commandments and whenever we are faithful to Him. That's the kind of future that John is calling these readers to anticipate and that Jesus is calling these readers to anticipate. A future glory that is certain. In this future hope, we have a Savior who's coming soon. In chapter 22, verses 6 and 7, we'll just look at verse 7. He says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. In verse 12, he says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each 
each one for what He has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Are we ready for the Lord's return? Are we anticipating His coming? Some people didn't because they thought it was kind of phony. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes to a group of people that are kind of, they're on the fence about this glory, this hope that's coming because everything's continuing the way that it's always continued. You said, where, where is the, the promise of His coming? Everything is going about the same way that it always has. And Peter reminds them that, look, the Lord does not count days the way that we do. We look at days as 24-hour literal periods of time, and that's the way we live life, one second of those times. But that's not the way God works. God doesn't occupy or doesn't operate on that time. God is an eternal present. And because of that, He can talk about Christmas Day as being here, come, past, and future all at the same time. And He can do the same thing with the Day of Judgment. And so it's in that context where the Savior Himself can say, I'm coming soon. Might not seem like it today. But maybe when it does happen, think about this. We talk about Christmas Day, and I'm just using Christmas Day because it's still kind of fresh on our minds. We'll say Christmas Day will be here before you know it. And it's like, man, where's Christmas? I mean, kids anticipate Christmas. It's months away. When's it going to get here? And then it gets here, and what do we say? Man, it sure got here quick, didn't it? I kind of understand that may be how Judgment Day is. It seems like it's taking a while for Jesus to come and get His people. I'm tired of suffering here on this earth. Take me home. When are you going to get here? And when He does, well, seemed like it was yesterday that I was saying the exact same thing. Come Lord Jesus. And here it is. Maybe that's the way it will be. I don't know. But I do know this, Jesus said that He is coming soon and I have no reason to question His motives or His intentions for saying what He said. But I anticipate the coming of Jesus knowing that it could be at any time and that it will be soon according to His terms and His standards. I also consider the future in anticipation because I have a relevant message to consider. We talked earlier about... Uh, uh, Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, didn't have the opportunity to talk about the things that he saw, even though he wanted to. And John kind of was in that boat too. If you go back to chapter 10 of Revelation, you may remember what happened to John. He sees this, 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 this scroll and the contents of the scroll, and he's wanting to write these things down, but he says, the angel tells him, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And so he's told to eat the scroll and said, he can't write these things down. Why can't he write it down? Well, I think he can't write it down because the image that he was going to write down is revealed in chapter 11. That's just my interpretation of this. But Daniel is in a similar boat. 
in Daniel chapter 8 and a couple of times in Daniel 12, Daniel is told to seal up the message and don't say anything about it. Why? Well, I think Daniel was told not to say anything about it there because everything was future. Daniel wasn't going to be around. He wasn't going to be alive to see any of those things that God had revealed to him in that moment. And so it wasn't relevant for him to reveal those things. All those things were going to be future. But notice what happens in chapter 22 of Revelation with what John is told to write. Verse 10, he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Why? Why don't he seal up the things? Because it's relevant. Don't seal this up. Why? Because the evildoer is still going to do evil. The filthy are still going to be filthy. The righteous will still do right and the holy will still be holy. Why not seal up this message? Why write it down? Because it's relevant for the times. Jesus is coming soon, but He hasn't come yet. And so everybody still needs to understand the severity and the seriousness of sin, righteousness, and holiness. Because those things are going to be around as long as the world is until Jesus comes back. And so it's a relevant message. Finally, there's a blessing and a curse. In verse 18, it says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. You know what I like about this verse or these two verses? Not pleasant to read, but this is not just something relevant to Revelation. It's mentioned twice in the book of Deuteronomy. It's also mentioned in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. If you want to allow me to use it to say it this way, in the beginning, middle, and end of the book, these words are recorded. I can't add to or take away from anything that God has revealed in His inspired Word. Because if I do, I can't anticipate the future glory that's described in this book or any other book of the Bible. Because it's only anticipated by those who put their faith in Jesus, give their lives to Him, and realize that He is more powerful, more dominant, and more victorious than any other earthly or spiritual being. As we close, I want us to think about this concept of revelation. So we kind of bring all this together and, and summarize the whole book. I've told you before, the way that I like to summarize revelations in one simple statement, those who overcome get to come over. That's revelation in a nutshell. And if we remember that, we've got the gist of what revelation is all about. But it does that in the context of trying to take power and glory and make them equal to one another. And power and glory never exists with Rome or any, of, any other earthly authority. It only exists with God and the Lamb. 
because they are the only ones that receive ultimate glory and that are victorious. But guess what happens? Because the Lamb and the Father are glorious ultimately and victorious ultimately, guess what we are able to receive? Ultimate victory and ultimate glory when we put our faith in them. I love this book. It's my favorite book by far of any of the 66 that we have in Scripture. Revelation's by far my favorite. And this is the reason why. Because those who overcome get to come over. Why am I doing this? What is the point in me living this life and, and trying to eat my way through life, through the ups and the downs and the roller coasters and all of that? Why am I doing this? It's because the God that I serve and the Lamb that was sacrificed on my behalf or for my behalf is the one that's given me a purpose and a hope and something to look forward to. That is why Revelation is beautiful. It may be that you're here this morning and you don't think about that beautiful life because you're not a part of it. Because you've never obeyed the gospel. And never, God has never added you to His church. How do I do that? I confess Jesus as my Savior. And I symbolically take part in His death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. And I'm raised to walk a new life. When I do that, God adds me to His church. The Holy Spirit dwells within me. And I, give, I get confidence like I've never had before. If you've never done that, you're missing out on the greatest blessing you'll ever be a part of. Make the decision today to do that. Those of you who have done that, but maybe you've fallen away or been unfaithful in some way. Maybe you're just having a tough time staying faithful and keeping your head above water. The opportunity for you to respond this morning is available too. Ask for prayers of the congregation. Let us pray for you. Let us hug you. Let us love on you. And let us show you that the love of Christ exists within His church family. If you need to respond for any reason whatsoever, please do so this morning as we stand and sing.